0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter one, and we will be in verse 24. Colossians 1, 24, if you're new here, welcome to Citizens Church. We're thrilled uh, that you chose to worship with us this morning. My name is Jamin, I'm one of the pastors here. And we are picking back up uh, in a series that we left in uh, last November. And so um, we're going to cover, uh, we're in chapter one, uh, towards the end of chapter one, starting in verse 24. And what I wanna do is just offer by way of recap, uh, briefly offer kind of the story of the letter to help uh, set up the time of where we're going. There's a guy named Epaphras. He lives in a city called Colossae. In the city of Colossae, there's a lot of different belief systems, a lot of different gods that people worship, a lot of different cultures that have all kind of come together uh, to mix together in this one city. It's a Roman colony. And so Caesar and the government of Rome is ultimately in charge of all that is happening and all that's going on. Uh, this guy, Epaphras, is a businessman and he is successful, and so his business takes him to a city called Ephesus, and in Ephesus, Epaphras, that was difficult, hears uh, from a guy named Paul. A guy named Paul in Ephesus is teaching, he's preaching, and he's talking about a guy named Jesus who he says is the Christ, the Savior, uh, the King. He died, he didn't stay dead, he rose again, and he is spreading the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And Epaphras hears that, he believes, uh, and he believes it to such a degree that he wants to take it to his hometown leaves his business trip goes back home preaches the gospel in Colossae a church is born and that church likely just meets in Epaphras's living room so that church is meeting in his living room he probably has a pretty large house so they're in his living room or a large meeting room and what begins to happen as the church grows there's this pressure from the culture to do two things because it is a city surrounded and filled with all different kinds of religions and belief systems, much like our county is, much like our cities are, there's this pressure to, uh, to add to the gospel of Jesus because it's a Roman colony and ultimately Rome preached their own gospel that everything that you most need, you get from Caesar, who's the real king, who's the real son of God. There was a pressure to subtract from the gospel of Jesus. So those pressures circle in around this small church in this city in Colossae. Epaphras doesn't really know what to do, and so he's like, "You know who would know what to do? Paul, the guy that I first heard the gospel from." He goes and he finds Paul. Paul's in prison. But Epaphras goes to meet him anyway, gets himself arrested. They're both in prison. He explains to Paul everything that's going on. Look, there's this pressure on our church. It's so fragile right now to pull away from the gospel, to add to the gospel. Can you help us? And yes, he can. And so he uh, cannot send Epaphras back because Epaphras is locked up with him. Instead, he writes a letter to this church, sends it to Colossae, and it becomes what you have in your lap as the letter of Colossians. And what it holds is it holds the answer to how to live faithfully in Christ, to how to live life in in Christ, in a world surrounding you that would say you need more than Jesus, uh, or to have Jesus is to have less than what you actually fully need. And so what we did last semester as we began walking through this, and we didn't get very far, we're only at the end of chapter one, but we saw in Paul's prayer what he's praying for that church and for our church, and we saw in his song, uh, he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. By him all things are made, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This beautiful song that was sung by the early church, we unpack that together and what it means for us. And so, February 9th, 2020, we're back in Colossians, and to be back in that book together means we're back in the living room, imagining that we are in that living room hearing this letter for the first time, being read by someone telling us what we need to live life in Christ. And so what happens in chapter two, which we'll get to next week, what happens in chapter two is Paul begins to actually get to the point of the letter. He begins to actually get to the meat of the letter and start talking about what it looks like to live life in Christ. But before he wants to offer his bio, and so if we, would, if we read 24 through into chapter 2, what you'd hear is he wants them to know that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and that's why he cares so much about them. He wants them to know that his aim is that they would be mature in Christ. What we're gonna hone in on this morning is that he wants them to know, and it comes out in verse 24, which we'll read in a moment. He wants them to know that he suffered. He wants them to know that he has suffering in his life on their behalf. And here's what's so strange about it. He says... I rejoice in it. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am, hear this, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Have you ever noticed that children will respond differently to pain depending on what's going on around them? I remember this became acute for me about a year ago. Uh, some morning, it was like a Saturday morning, my son uh, stepped on a Lego and fell to the ground and wept like the world was over, and, which I get because Legos are awful on bare feet. But uh, then later that day, uh, I, he was playing soccer and I watched as the best kid on the other team kicked the ball as hard as he could. It hits Asher right in the face, knocks him off his feet, and he hops up and keeps playing. And I thought, Huh. <laughs> Surely the soccer ball hurt at least as much as the Lego. But his reaction was different because kind of the story around the pain was different. The And so I wanted to put that to the test. So now every now and then when he gets hurt, um, I will try and discern how hurt he actually is or help him see his pain clearly by changing the story of his hurt. So about a month ago or so, his sister, they're playing. She steps on his leg. He's on the ground. He's upset. He's crying. I said, all right, buddy, you're all right. Hop up. And he goes, no, Dad, I can't. It hurts too bad. I said, okay, what if, what if you were the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys? And what if this was the Super Bowl? And your leg feels the way it does now. It hurts the way it does now. But it's the Super Bowl and your team needs you. Could you get up and get back in the game? And he goes, It doesn't matter, they'd lose anyway. <laughs> and I thought, That is the most honest thing a Cowboys fan has ever said. <laughs> He's a bit jaded from this past season, by the way, aren't we all? I said, Okay, bad example. <laughs> what if your little sisters were in trouble? He's a big brother. He loves being a big brother to little sisters. He prides himself in being a protector of his little sisters. And so I said, what if they're in trouble? What if some kid's picking on them at the park? Or what if they're lost and can't find their way home? Your leg feels the way it does now. Could you get up and could you go help them? And he goes, Dad, of course. They're my sisters. Christian, what if if the story behind your pain is different than you think it is? It's the question I want to lay over this verse, verse 24, because Paul has a really surprising reaction to his pain. He says, There's suffering in my life. I rejoice in the suffering, because of what it does. And it's because he rejoices in it because there is a story surrounding his suffering that enables him to react differently to it. And it's not imaginary. It's not me making up a story for my kid. It is the true story that for all of us as Christians, our pain finds its home in that story. Here's how he says it again. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body that is the church. So let's just imagine with me, you don't know a whole lot about Paul. You're sitting in the living room. You're hearing this read for the very first time. And so you raise your hand and you say, Hey, what is he talking about? Like what's suffering? I don't know him. I don't know his story. Is he sick? Has he lost a loved one? And the guy reading the letter is a guy named Tychicus, and he's a friend of Paul's. He's done ministry with Paul. And so he stops and he says, well, let me explain. This guy has been through a lot. In fact, uh, he wrote a letter four years ago to a church in Corinth, and he lists out his suffering. Here are just some of the things that he lists. Countless beatings. Almost all of them to the point of of death. Five times the Jewish leaders flogged him just like they did Jesus. Three times he was beaten with sticks. Once he was stoned. We read about it in our men and women's Bible class this last week that a mob threw rocks at him, thought they killed him, drug him outside the city to leave what they thought was his dead body. He's been lost at sea, uh, his life threatened by all kinds of people, robbers, people that have the the same race as him, people from other races, he's been in danger in all kinds of places, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea. In his own words, here's what he says. This is from 2 Corinthians, "In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, in cold in exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches did you hear all that how tragic behind i just offered the bullet points of his suffering all of that amounts to a body that is filled with scars and a mind that is filled with bad memories Not just that, he says there's this emotional suffering. Do you have any idea the weight I carry around worrying about these churches I love, worrying about this gospel that I want to go out into the world? And so that's what he's been through. When he says, I rejoice in my suffering, that's what he's talking about. So then you raise your hand again. He's like, hey, I'm sorry. I I don't want to be the question guy, but I need you to read it to me again because I'm pretty sure I heard you say the word rejoice, but I must have heard wrong. Because what you just described is a life of pain, and a life of lonely moments, and a life of towing the line between life and death, and a life of laying away wishing you could fall asleep, and a life of hunger, and a life of cold, and a life of worry. And that is the life that you dread. That is a life that you try to avoid. It for sure is not a life that you rejoice in, unless, unless there is a story behind the suffering that changes the way you view the pain. Unless there is a story that changes the way you react because within that story, your pain finds its meaning. Citizens Church, we talk about suffering a lot around here. Let me tell you why. One reason why is because the Bible talks about it a lot. We're committed mostly to preaching through books of the Bible, and so as we've preached through books of the Bible, starting back in John and now in Colossians, the Bible's going to talk often about suffering because it has a lot to say about suffering. We also talk about suffering a lot because I know so many of us are right in the middle of it. So many of us have experienced it, are experiencing it, all of us to some degree will experience it. And the way I know that is because I've been in ministry long enough to know, and just been a human long enough to know, that for every story of pain that someone shares with me, or for every prayer request about pain that people ask me to join them in praying for, there are at least four or five, if not a dozen, that are unknown to me. And so it's not a stretch to think that in the room right now, there is story after story that when I say the word suffering, so many of you think immediately of something going on in your life right now. Maybe it's physical suffering. Maybe it's relational suffering. Maybe it's suffering that is self-inflicted. There's suffering in your life because of your own sin. Maybe it's suffering at the hands of another, suffering in your life because someone sinned against you. Maybe it's just suffering from living in a world that is broken in need of Jesus. But the reality is this, is that many of us, and I would say our, as we clarify, all of us just know what it means to be a human in pain. And I know it gets complicated because for some they'd say, look, there is pain in my life that is not the result of disobedience but the result of obedience. I obeyed God. I did what I felt like he wanted me to do and that has invited into my life suffering that I just could not have imagined. And the Bible is not silent about that, friend. We will always be faithful to say what the Bible says about suffering, that it's painful. It in of itself is not good. It belongs to a world that is broken in need of rescue, but it's not Without purpose, everyone believes a story about their pain. Everyone. And for the Christian, there is one true story, and then there are many false ones to choose from. And it's in believing those false stories that so often our pain, uh, in our pain, it loses its meaning and we miss Jesus. So here are, let me just offer two false stories that I encounter most when it comes to suffering. The first is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, It grows out of a culture that believes about pain that it's just to be avoided at all cost. Uh, And that's the culture that we live in. In fact, I read a a really helpful illustration. It was a metaphor from a guy named Nassim Tlaib. He's a professor at NYU. I, I don't know that he's a believer, but he writes on stress and struggle and risk and suffering. And he's written a couple books about it. And he's trying to say that there are really two categories. You can view pain, you can view suffering through two different categories. And I want to borrow his metaphor. He says, suffering is the wind. And if suffering is the wind, you either see yourself As a wildfire or as a candle? And if uh, suffering is the wind and you are a wildfire, what does the wind do to the fire? Gives it life. It spreads it. It has the potential to take it further than it could have gone had the wind never blown. But if if suffering is the wind and you're a candle, what does wind do to a candle? Blows it out. It extinguishes it. By and large, the story around us influencing us, being believed by us is that we're candles. That uh, not only is suffering meaningless, but it's to be avoided because it's a threat to me and it can extinguish my life. And so we live under then a new definition for what makes life good. We live under a new definition for what makes life worth living. I think you could argue that at a time the generally accepted definition of the good life was a life that was full of virtue and free of compromise, That life has meaning and mattering when it's filled with character and filled with virtue and free of the kind of things that compromise that character. Now, though, in 2020, in Collin County, in the Western world, the good life is not the life that is filled with virtue and free of compromise. The good life is the life that is filled with options and free of pain. And that's the story we breathe in. That's the story that we believe that we are candles and therefore order our lives and our fears around what will secure comfort and what will avoid the wind and it's not that we believe that we can live forever but it is that we believe that we can craft our life in such a way that we uh, experience the things we do want to experience and we avoid the things that we don't want to experience and what happens the wind blows for everyone out of nowhere it comes And as it comes in, the questions creep in. Why is this happening? And in the world where avoiding pain is what it means to really live, in a world where I've defined the good life as being filled with options and free of pain, when pain comes, I don't have an answer to the question other than it's meaningless. It means nothing. Sometimes these things just happen. And how that comes out in the life of a Christian is confusion that will often turn into accusation, meaning, God, I obeyed. God, I gave. God, I did what you wanted me to do, and you didn't hold up your end, God. You did not protect me from the wind. That's what I thought I was signing up for, the easy life, the dreams come true life, because the belief is if I do for God, then God will join me in my project of pain avoidance. He will help me craft the life that is filled with options and free of pain, and we forget. That when God became a man and modeled for us what life should look like, it was a life that was filled with pain. It's a false story that it doesn't matter. It's also a false story, and if you would, please go with me here. There's another false story about your pain that says not only does it not matter, it doesn't count. Meaning, yes, I've lost. Yes, I've suffered. Yes, there's pain. Yes, things have been difficult. Yes, life has been difficult. Yes, relationships have been difficult. But it doesn't count because I don't have it as bad as others. It doesn't count because I know stories and I know people whose suffering is worse than my, they've been through more than I have. And because it's not as bad as what they've been through, it doesn't count. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever experienced something like that? I wonder about that, friends. I wonder about that. Here's what I wonder I wonder if that feels humble, but in reality is a defense mechanism. If my suffering doesn't count because someone else has suffered more, that means I never have to face what hurts me. And that's dangerous. Because if I don't face hurt, then that means hurt never heals. And hurt that doesn't heal is hurt that we hide And it's hidden under secret sin and it's hidden under fake smiles and it's hidden under the hurt that we pass on to others because always, hidden pain always comes out of our life as the hurt that we inflict on others. And it comes out in the hurt that we inflict in our marriages or in our homes or at Little League games, right? It comes out unbeknownst to us because of the undealt with pain that we hid under some sort of word that felt humble, some sort of idea, some sort of statement like, yeah, sure, but I've never been through what they've been through. Or, yeah, sure, but others have it worse than I do, so it must not count. Those are false stories, It is not true that suffering doesn't matter. It is not true that your suffering doesn't count. And to those stories, what we see Paul tell is a story behind his suffering that makes his pain matter, that makes his pain count, and that uh, resources him to not only endure it, but to rejoice in it. Here's what he says. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. Do you hear it? The story behind his suffering is the story of the Savior who suffered. Behind his pain, somehow, he says, my afflictions are connected to Christ and his afflictions. You know that story, right? Isaiah tells that story, the prophet poet in Isaiah 53. This is the story of the suffering Savior. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knows all the pain associated with being human. He knows what it feels like. He knows how it hurts to be human in all the ways that we know, if not more. But in his suffering, what we know, what the Bible tells us, is that it accomplishes something. Hebrews is going to say, it's for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't joyful for him to be wounded like that, to be pierced like that, to be tortured like that. The joy was that in enduring that suffering, he knew it was doing something. He knew it was accomplishing something. And in his life that was filled with pain and in his painful death, his sufferings are restoring the world. It's through his suffering that I'm saved from my sin and you're saved from your sin. And it's because of his suffering that one day we know that suffering will be gone for good. And so Paul comes along with stripes of his own and he comes along with scars of his own and loss of his own and worry of his own and he doesn't say I'm a candle that's about to be extinguished by all that I'm going through he says no my suffering belongs to the story of the savior who suffered and in that story suffering matters so I know my pain is doing something it's accomplishing something way it comes out of his mouth, or rather comes out of his pen, is he says, my suffering is filling up what's lacking. Here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that Jesus' suffering and his life on the cross was not enough for his sin, or was not enough for your sin, or not enough for my sin. Jesus' death in my place was sufficient to cover all of my sin. Jesus' death in your place was sufficient to free you from the penalty of all of your sin. It's what he means when he says we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption. He's done something in the past that has secured something for us in the present, and it's covered all of it. What that means, Christian, is that God will never punish you. He disciplines those whom he loves, and he disciplines in love for our good, but he never punishes in anger. That's different. Hear me. Hear me. If there is pain in your life right now, it is not God's wrath for your sin. And if you believe about your suffering that it's God's punishment, that's to believe about Jesus' death that it's insufficient. And it's not. It's what we sing. Jesus paid it all. What he means when he says it's filling up what's lacking is that because my suffering finds its meaning in the story of the suffering Savior, When there's pain, when there's suffering, I can follow it back to the cross and there is a closeness that comes with Jesus. There's three ways that we see that in this passage informed by others. Suffering turns our hearts and our eyes towards the return of Jesus, teaches us to long for his return. You find in the Bible this idea that in between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, there is an amount of suffering his people will endure. There is a specific meaning to this and a general meaning to this. Specifically, there is an amount of persecution and there is an amount of martyrdom that the church will endure before Jesus comes back. And that's what Paul has in mind here. Some theologians believe it's a fixed amount in the mind of God. And so you think about passages like Revelation 6, there's this scene where there are men and women who have died for Jesus. They have been crucified like he was crucified, or they were beheaded, or they were burned at the stake, or they were stoned by some sort of mob, and they are at the throne of God, and they are crying out, asking God a question. When, God? When will you return? When will Jesus finish what he started? And God's response is curious. He says, rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants, your brothers, should be complete who will be killed just as you have been killed. There is a reality that in between Jesus' first and second coming, it's like there is this cup of suffering that God holds. And every single act of persecution, every single martyr is a drop in that cup. And once it hits the brim, it will pour out as God's wrath and rescue for the world in the return of Jesus. So I don't think it's too strong to say that what Paul has in mind in his suffering, in his persecution, in his eventual martyrdom, he is hastening the return of Jesus. He is bringing closer the return of Jesus. He is moving the project of Christ's return forward in history. He is writing this letter in prison. There's a chance, there's a chance in his mind that he is dead before the letter even gets to these people. And what he's saying is, if I die, it will be one more drop in the cup that one day pours out in the glorious return of the victorious king. Okay, well, what about us? because I've never been persecuted like that. If you have, right, or you know loved ones who've been persecuted or martyred in that way, then what this text says to you is that those are drops in the cup, that it's part of a beautiful story uniquely connected to the suffering of Jesus. But for the rest of us, where maybe that's not our story, what Paul's gonna say in another letter is that all suffering, all suffering, speaks to and has us turn to Jesus' return. Romans 8, he says suffering is like birth pains. Suffering is a sign of what is coming, like birth pains that intensify before the child is born. Not that I speak from experience. I don't know what that's like. Don't offend anybody. But my understanding is that as the pain intensifies, as it grows, it's just a greater sign that life is coming that the child is on its way, that the gift will be here soon. And Paul says that all of our suffering contributes to this cosmic groaning for the gift that is Jesus. Maybe it's not the drop in the cup like the death of a martyr, but it will at minimum, it will at minimum make my heart and your heart, if seen rightly, long for Jesus's return. I could ask it this way. Do you think more of the return of Jesus when things are going well or when life is really hard? That's why C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, says God whispers in our pleasures. God speaks in our conscience. But God shouts in our pain. It accomplishes something. It reminds us what history is ultimately waiting for. Not only that, but not only does it cultivate in us a heart that longs for Jesus in the future, it also brings Christ closer in the present us and to others. Paul says it this way, my suffering does something for the sake of the body. It does something for the church. All of his uh, trauma, all of his wounds, all of his bad memories, he is then directing those towards this church he's writing to and saying, it's accomplishing something for you. And here's the idea. Jesus who suffered is not here. He's in heaven and he's ruling and reigning, but the church that Paul's writing to has never seen him. We have never seen him. We know of his suffering. We have been saved because of his suffering, but he's in heaven ruling and reigning. Paul is on earth struggling and suffering and in his earthly experience of affliction, he is offering to others a picture of the afflicted Christ in such a way that Jesus moves in closer to the church. John Piper says it like this, speaking on Colossians 1.24, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ the church to experience some of the suffering he experienced, so that when we offer the Christ of the cross to people, they see the Christ of the cross in us. We are to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in offering him to them and living the life of love he lived. On the cross, Jesus is both afflicted and full of love. And now he's in heaven. On earth, when a Christian when the wind blows into your life and a Christian is both afflicted and full of love, what happens is that the Christ in heaven is offered through that affliction and love in a way that would not be the same had the affliction never come. I, I am lost for words to help make this make sense. So could I just offer my experience to you? It is an honor as a pastor to get a unique invitation into people's hurt. Not that I want that hurt for them, but it's just an honor to be in that space with them, and it's happened a lot. It's an honor to be able to walk in suffering with those. And there are so many stories of so many times of people, the wind blew into their life, and they trusted in Jesus. The wind blew in their life and they told the story and I saw in them one who was afflicted and full of love and I walk away and the only thing I can come up with to describe the experience is I just saw Jesus. I saw Jesus coming out of their life. I'll go home to Carrie after after just these moments and I'll just say, listen, there are things that I have believed for almost 30 years There are things that I've known to be true. There are answers I knew to give. There are truths about God. But walking away from that couple, walking away from that widow, walking away from that hospital, they're just more real than they've ever been. They've gone deeper in my life than they they ever have. And what that is, is that is in, in our suffering, we have a unique opportunity to present the full of love afflicted Jesus to those around us. Your pain will amplify whatever story you're telling. And when your pain amplifies the true story of the true Savior, it is a unique presentation of the suffering Savior. Most of all, most of all, what happens in suffering for the Christian is you come to know Jesus more intimately If the story is believed rightly, you come to know Jesus more intimately. Do you remember the first conversation Paul and Jesus had? Paul is on a mission to destroy the church. He's afflicting the church, and Jesus knocks him off his horse. And Jesus has a question for him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting. Paul never touched Jesus. Like Paul, when he uh, persecuted, he persecuted his followers. What Jesus is saying when he says, why are you persecuting me? Is he saying to inflict pain on one who belongs, Jesus, is to hurt Jesus. So one of the very first truths that Paul learned about Jesus is that when his people suffer, he suffers with them. It's why Paul, on the other side of that, not inflicting the pain but enduring the pain, would write in Philippians, the only thing I want to know, the thing I most long to know is Jesus and the fellowship of his suffering. To hurt, friends, as one who belongs to Jesus, to hurt as one who belongs to him, is to know more deeply the one who first hurt for you. And to come to believe experientially that when you hurt, he's with us in it from his own wounds. I believe that this is seen clearly in scripture. I have also seen this clearly in the lives of believers here at Citizens Church. I want to invite up Robin Bush to share her story of suffering. She is a woman who I have seen all of these truths in her life as she has walked through her own story Would you welcome Robin as she comes to the stage?
1: Thank you, sweet Jamin. Okay, so I know that some of you sitting here are in tremendous pain right now, and some of you haven't really tasted much of it in your life. But my hope wherever you fall that you will be encouraged. Um, At the end of the day, suffering is suffering, pain is pain, and grief is going to plow its way across all of our hearts. But by God's grace, none of it is going to be wasted. In the book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, Elizabeth Elliott gives a spot on definition. Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have, period. Everything is covered. And for us today, this definition invites all of us into acknowledging that in some way, pain's present for all of us. In December of 2016, my handsome, healthy husband suffered a massive stroke that left him almost completely unable to talk or walk. The stroke occurred from a blood clot that had blocked off the flow to his the left side of his brain due to a tear in his left carotid artery. That tear occurred from the stress of throwing up from a regular old stomach virus on the morning of december 22nd about 72 hours later todd passed from this earthly life into his heavenly one and into the presence of jesus and of course wonderfully glorious for him but so painfully tragic for me and my children here three days before christmas we were thrown into a world of hurt but in the midst of the painful shock and heartbreak, God whispered some precious truths over my heart that have anchored me in. I knew immediately that Todd belonged to the Lord. He was his to do with as he willed, that God's will had not been thwarted, made no sense to my heart, and that he was not going to forsake me. And those truths let me... let my tears begin to pour as the grief began to set in. Just a few months prior to this happening, Todd and I were standing in our kitchen having a conversation about some people who were suffering. And we were just wondering at the hard things that we were watching them walk in, and right before Todd walked out the room, he said, I guess we're just going to be one of those families who never has anything too traumatic happen to us. Well, those words have rung in my ears as I have thought so many times. Well, honey, you didn't exactly call that one right. (laughs) The simple truth is that Jesus told us himself in this life, you will have trouble. In our days on this earth, this side of glory are going to bring difficulty, pain and affliction to each of us. None of us are exempt. But Jesus also finished out that hard truth with unbeatable hope. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Since Todd had signed up to be an organ donor two years earlier, we stepped into that process with the transplant team who began to care for Todd's body as the search began to to find the best organ matches. And the next 48 hours revealed those matches one by one. And on Christmas Eve night, doctors flew in to perform surgery on Todd, and then they immediately flew out with a little blue cooler containing one of Todd's healthy organs. And on Christmas morning, those surgeries took place the gift of Todd's heart, his lungs, his kidneys, his liver, and his beautiful blue eyes are placed into some terribly ill people. And as I stepped into the days following Todd's death, grief hit hard. Grief is brutal, and grief is work. Tears flowed, and they clearly still do. But God began to reveal himself to me in ways I could never have imagined. And I poured over God's word with a new and necessary dependence looking for anything I could find on his sovereignty, on the realities of heaven since Todd was there and I wanted to be there with him and on the unbreakable nature of his hope. And it bred peace in my heart. I sought out every scripture that revealed God's heart for the widow, seeking out how he met them in their pain. Widowed women in the scriptures like Anna and Naomi and Ruth became mentors of mine. And I watched God meet them faithfully in the depths of their suffering. God was using their suffering to encourage me. 2,000, 3,000 years later, me, another one of his daughters who is widowed who needed to see his faithfulness in their affliction so that in my affliction, I would be edified and comforted and even emboldened in my faith to trust him more. And I just sat there and clearly wept through the scriptures, Lamentations, Psalms, Job, Isaiah, and the Gospels of Jesus just ushered me in again and again to God's presence. And as I watched his story unfold in all of these lives, He met me intimately using his word to pour the mercy of his counsel and comfort over my heart and mind each day. The Psalms of Lament brilliantly gave me words to begin to express the depth of my pain, learning how to acknowledge my own heartbreak and my fears before God, at times speaking out loud what felt unspeakable to God. Those laments anchored me back into the unchangeable truths of God and invited me to place my suffering and the suffering of my children into his abundantly capable and loving hands. One of the truths I continue to learn is that in Jesus, there is created this unique space For his grace to take hold of my grief, using it as his sanctifying tool to probe and pierce the depths of my heart, bringing new clarity, new devotion, and understanding into my life with Christ and also into his. Jesus knew suffering. He knew abandonment, rejection, loss, betrayal. He knew the pain of injustice and condemnation. He suffered abuse and mockery, torture, and death. And yet his response was, your will be done. God was glorified through his obedience to suffering and good broke out for all of us through it. But there are mysteries to suffering we simply won't be able to understand. This side of glory, our finite minds just can't get up high enough to the magnitude of God's wisdom and all that he is working out. But one gift of suffering we can understand is that suffering reveals how desperately we need Jesus Christ. So we cry, we bleed, we hurt, but thankfully we are not abandoned for suffering must obey his voice and even relent to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. When we can't understand his ways by faith, we can trust his heart. My deepest sufferings and sorrows have brought about my deepest knowing of Christ. And intimacy with Jesus, the deeper knowing of him in the painful places, is by far the greatest gain I have ever had in my life. Several years ago, I was in our women's Bible study class and we were studying Genesis. And at the end of each lesson, we had to write out a summarizing sentence to remind us of what we had learned that week. And about a month before Todd died, My summarizing phrase was, if God is the author, then I am his story. He is the author of my life. He is the author of Todd's life. I'm the author of my children's lives. And he is the author of your life. And he's telling his story of grace and mercy to you, in you, and through you, through us, to the world. I didn't know my life was going to have some pain and grief that it bears now. But this side of glory, we have to walk by faith and not by sight. But one day, when we are in his presence, breathing in the full view of his brilliance and majesty, on our knees, I wholeheartedly believe we will say, you knew what you were doing all along. How worthy is your name?
0: Amen. Would you bow with me? And just assume a posture of prayer while we consider some things together. I don't know your story. I don't know where this lands for you. But I do believe the question that God would have you answer in your heart is what is the story you believe about your pain? What is the story that you believe about your suffering? Could it be that the story is different than you've thought and that could lead you to places that you just never imagined that suffering with Jesus would carry you? What I love so much and have loved so much about Robin's story since leaving the hospital those years ago is that from the moment the suffering began, the story of Jesus came from her mouth. I saw one afflicted and full of love, and saw Jesus. Could it be, friend, that the story you've believed about your pain and about your suffering is different than you thought? And in the story of the suffering savior, you're not alone. In the story of the suffering savior, your pain matters. In the story of the suffering savior, God could use it like he's done in the life of my sister, that God could use it to reveal himself to others in ways that drives the truths of the gospel deeper in their heart, that God could use it in ways that maybe every question doesn't get answered, but what you find is Jesus, in intimacy with him. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. You're kind to us. I find myself again just confronted with All of the realities I don't know about these men and women that I deeply love. And so I lean on the truth that you know everyone, Jesus. You know every story. You know every detail. And I pray that you would lift the truths from your word. That you would lift the truths spoken so beautifully and boldly by our sister Robin. And you would settle them appropriately on every heart in the room that it would settle on one and lift up their face, that it would settle on another and break down walls that have been erected, that it would settle on another and and say, you know, it's time that I start talking about this. For your glory, because none of it's wasted. All of it matters. We love you and we thank you. Amen.